0: earlier I mentioned about 10 years in venture capital so that's about 10,000 pitches I've heard and I, I've detected a few common themes that persist to this day. The first one is that you should just say what you do in really simple words in the first 30 seconds of a pitch.
1: You are listening to The Shot Entrepreneur. a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Sunil Nagaraj. He's the founder and managing partner at Ubiquity Ventures, a seed stage venture capital firm with a focus on software beyond the screen. Let's find out what that means and how software has transformed many real-world physical problems and made it possible for us to go into the future with new greenfield markets. Sunil, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur.
0: Hi, Gopi. Thank you for having me.
1: Tell me about yourself starting with your childhood and what kind of nerdy things you geeked out on. <laughs> That's
0: a great question. I like to think of Ubiquity as a nerdy and early venture capital firm, and I mean that. To be clear, I think of someone nerdy as somebody who's just so deeply obsessed with something that they know everything about it. And they have to share it with the world. So with regard to my childhood, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, child of two immigrants, older brother, younger sister. What that meant was we were always tinkering with things, playing with things, exploring things. There was a lot of technology floating around the house in the mid-80s. We were always poking around in the computers, fiddling around with BASIC and Turbo Pascal and other programming languages, and my older brother was always farther advanced, but always great about teaching me. And, and so I'm with my father, so from a young age, I don't know five, seven years old, we were fiddling with computers and programming, and that's uh, played a huge role in how I look at the world now. As you briefly touched on, this idea that software can now run everywhere in the real world, can understand the real world, navigate the real world, is an idea that's been cooking for. 30 years now, that, that software has been taking on bigger and bigger problems. My brother and I had a lawn mowing business. So a long time ago, we made a lawn mowing software management platform so we could manage our business and our customers. When I was preparing for the SAT, I made a flashcard program to study vocabulary words. So i always tried to solve problems with software wherever I could. And, and often that was software I wrote for myself.
1: That's very interesting. How did that translate to venture capital? What got you excited about the venture capital world?
0: I first heard that venture capital existed in 2004, probably. I had just started my first full-time job. I graduated from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a degree in computer science in 2004. And I moved to Atlanta in Georgia to work at Bain & Company. This is a management consulting firm. It actually didn't have very much to do with technology. It just had to do with beefing up business skills. And nights and weekends, because I missed coding. When I came home from my business job at Bain, I would turn on my computer and and start coding. I did a bunch of different independent projects to try to stay sharp, to try to keep my coding skills sharp. It was along the way there that I was reading TechCrunch and just started to learn that venture capital was a job, that there are people who get to throw darts at the board and, and decide or guess where the world is going. And if it works, they get to be part of a great success story and make a lot of money along the way. That just sounded like a dream job it would be what is it 7 years later that i would actually get into venture capital i dabbled with trying to get into venture capital earlier along the way but it wasn't until 2011 when i joined venture capital and even when i joined venture capital in the interim it was 3 years at bain 2 years at harvard getting my mba and then 2 years as a founder that brings you to 2011 and that's when i got into venture capital and it was at that period i think having that curiosity for nerdy new technology paired with a, a strong business foundation was i think what allowed me to get in and uh, so it has echoes of my childhood technical curiosity.
1: So you were born as a geek and you played with software pretty much throughout your childhood. When you moved into the business world, you kept that part and you were building things on the side. And eventually you decided to start Ubiquity. What's the genesis of that? Why did you decide to start your Ubiquity and what was the origin of the story?
0: That's a great question. I'll start by tying it to my childhood. I just remembered one other element. There was a, a TV show some of your listeners may may remember called Beyond Tomorrow or Beyond 2000. It was on Discovery Channel, I think. And it was the show that just featured new technologies. I remember watching it when I was 10 years old, five years old, 15 years old, for a long time. And it was always featuring the new technologies that are gonna be changing our world. And I always found that so fascinating as a kid. And now with uh, day-to-day as a venture capitalist, you may agree as well, Gopi, but a lot of the day is spent just listening to cool new technologies from passionate people. With regard to the genesis, the actual genesis of Ubiquity. So I uh, joined venture capital in 2011, just over ten years. Last month was my ten-year anniversary of joining venture capital. I joined Bessemer Venture Partners, and I was at Bessemer for six years. Mm-hmm. During that time at Bessemer, I learned two things. One is how to do venture capital, and the number two is I learned to start to identify nascent trends and catch them at the right time. One of the trends I saw is what led to Ubiquity. During those six years at Bessemer, this is 2011 to 2017. I was working with um, a few partners at Bessemer, primarily David Cowan, and we did a little bit more of the deep tech investing, a little bit more of the non-traditional investing. This included a metal 3D printer, Velo 3D. It included uh, a rocket that goes to space called Rocket Lab. It included a satellite company called Spire. It also included more traditional companies that have done really well. So Off 0 was a, a developer tool for security that I seeded and led the Series A. They just sold this month, actually, for six and a half billion dollars. So there was a good balance of uh, I handed Twitch their first term sheet, the series uh, at, the first time after they pivoted from Justin TV. So there was a pivot of uh, a balance of mainstream investments as well as intrepid investments. Out of some of those intrepid investments, I started to see a recurring theme, which is that Areas that felt very different than mainstream software were starting to behave software-like. When you go to a 3D printing company, a metal 3D company, Velo3D, they have a laser that melts powder, to put it really simply. Now, the way that they work, though, is they're not so focused on the mechanical parts of the metal 3D printer. Almost all of their work is in C++. They talk about two-week sprints and Agile. They talk about analytics and closing the feedback loop and having over-the-air updates. These are the same ways that people talk about Angry Birds, the software, or Facebook or Gmail. So I was starting to see these parallels between how the real world was built, how real physical things were being built, and how they really weren't as monolithic or slow-moving as many investors I know thought they were. So as a investor, I'm always looking for great opportunities, but most importantly, I'm looking for great opportunities where other people haven't realized it yet. And this is what led to Ubiquity, this notion that software that's really powerful that we can build really effectively, software can now leap off of the computer screen and land in the real physical world, far away from a computer or a mouse. What that means is when you get into your car, we now actually take this for granted. We're using software. When a Tesla can suddenly go zero to 60, half a second faster with an over the air update. Your car has to reboot, your book has to reboot. These are crazy things to have said just 10 years ago, right? That, that would have sounded like complete nonsense. More of the world is becoming software-like and it was definitely informed by some of those investments. Another one that from Bessemer that is relevant is Tile, right? The little piece of plastic you put on different things you wanna make sure you never lose. I have many of them in my life, it was another investment. I invested in the seed round of Tile. Watching these companies that were right on the edge of software, where I was starting to see a lot of open green space for more opportunity and the ability for venture capital funding timelines to finally fall in line with these companies presented a massive opportunity. So Ubiquiti is now four years old and all of the companies I back really are software beyond the screen companies. They take a real world physical problem and they transform it into a software problem. Now, why would you want to transform something into a software problem? It's because it becomes a lot cheaper, a lot quicker, And the solution you develop is a lot more flexible. That's in terms of solving a customer's problem. In terms of growing a big business, these kind of businesses can ramp really quickly and they secure attractive valuations because they have recurring revenue, they have an ongoing customer relationship. Is pretty different than selling hardware. You know, if you imagine the television you buy, you buy it for five hundred dollars, you buy it once, end a story. There's a lot of television manufacturers, so margins are low. The opposite of that would be a business where you you sign up, you're paying a monthly fee, it's a recurring ongoing relationship, you're having the ability to get updates and additional features over time. The majority of businesses that I back have some element to that. Now, all of them are not hardware. About half of the companies Ubiquiti is backed, have an element of hardware, half do not have any hardware, but they're all tied to pushing software into more areas of our world, besides just on a computer screen.
1: The Silicon Valley ecosystem started with deep tech hardware. Companies like Fairchild, all the way to Intel and Broadcom and many others were started with that as the foundation. But over the years... The VC investment process has shied away from touching anything to do with hardware, anything that has to do with inventories or anything that has capital investment, but you are not shy. And is that because you feel like we're going back into a new area where hardware will become important or are you looking at it because no one else is looking at it? It's a a neglected area.
0: That's a great question. I think it's more of the latter, right? In any investment, I'm trying to find opportunity, and that could be thought of as somewhere where no one else is looking. But very importantly, they will be looking soon, right? There's this uh, Wayne Gretzky quote about skate where the puck is going. So I want to be skating to an empty spot on the ice because no one else is there, but I want to know that I'm doing that because the puck is heading there. I think that's an important piece of the puzzle. I think the comparison to the invention of the transistor and things like that. Is interesting, but I'm not, I'm actually fairly careful not to invest in, in fundamental science or long lead projects. The majority of investments that I choose to make usually use a million dollar or two million dollar seed round to go from just starting the company to having production revenue. So that actually lops off a lot of deep tech uh, in the traditional sense. It's a company that needs million or needs major university research to get off the ground. Those kind of companies are probably not in scope. So I think there are different flavors of deep tech today. Deep tech is a pretty broad word, but anything that doesn't sound like Instagram or Salesforce or something like that, you lump into deep tech. But I think there's a a sliver of deep tech that has the capital characteristics of software. And that's where I'm focusing. Um, There are other venture capitalists who will invest in a new molecule, a new type of spider silk, a new kind of solar panel, these kind of fundamental deeper innovations. And I'm not um, investing in that partially because the size of my venture capital fund, I have a $30 million fund one and about a $50 million fund two. So I'm targeting these companies where uh, a million or $2 million will really move the ball forward. I tend to be terrified of these really large swings where a billion dollars or half a billion dollars, and you you finally know if the technology is going to work. I'm thinking about companies like Magic Leap or something like that. That just seems very scary to me. So I'm, I'm very focused on agile iteration, but having some familiarity with software that can run in more places beyond a computer or smartphone.
1: Can you give an example of one or two companies? How do you find them? What do you ask in the first one or two meetings? What are you looking for?
0: So I'll start with a simple framework for what runs through my mind when I'm hearing a pitch. What I don't ask myself is what might be obvious. Is this cool? Would I use it? I never use either of those questions. There's three questions I ask myself during a pitch. I do about a thousand pitches a year for 30 minutes or an hour. I ask myself these three questions. Does anyone want it? Are there a lot of those people? And can this entrepreneur find those people? So does anybody want this product? Are there a lot of people who want this product and can they be found? And these three questions correspond to product market fit. Does anyone want it, product market fit? Are there a lot of those people that corresponds to addressable market? And then can you find them corresponds to unit economics. So at the seed stage, most of my investments, the companies have one or two or three employees. They're zero months old. A third of my investments I invested the day the company was incorporated. Sometimes they're six months old. These companies, typically, I don't need to ask that last question, the unit economics. It's a little bit too premature for that. So I'm mostly focusing my energy on, does anyone want this product? Right? And there's actually a bonus question for deeper tech, which is, does it even work? Right? So question zero, I know I'm cheating a little bit, but question zero is, does it work? Question one is, does anyone want it? Question two is, are there a lot of those people? That's where I'm spending a lot of my energy in a pitch. And what I'm listening for um, on the Does It Work is someone who is deeply fluent in this technical domain. Right? And this is where I call Ubiquity a nerdy and early firm. I f- think of myself as a nerd that can follow a lot of technical concepts. I also have a nerd crew called the Extended Team that helps me to decipher whether different people and different technologies are legit. If, if I don't want to be sold on snake oil, if that makes sense. I don't want to go off the deep end with technology that's going to take too long to develop or technology that's not really working. So when I think about does it work, the, really the first question I ask during a pitch and first question I'm trying to answer, I'm listening often for if somebody is fluent in their area. And, and that's actually a little more subtle than it seems. Every domain has its own small manners of speaking, but I'll give you a concrete example If someone said that they were coding HTML last night, it's a hundred percent chance they don't know what they're talking about, right? No one codes HTML. You write HTML and that's just a tiny little detail. But if you don't know this domain, you might say code You learned how to code HTML and you just know immediately the person isn't actually that technical. In the same way, there's a million different ways to look for little tells like that that I'm listening to in addition to what's shown on the beautiful slides to assess if this person has the technical chops, if they have the background, if they speak with fluency about their technical domain. The the other half of my energy is spent on, does anyone want it? That sounds like a simple idea, but sussing out a signal with high integrity, high fidelity that people really do want this is a tricky thing. Not only do I want to know that there are people that an entrepreneur doesn't know, right? So it can't be your brother or your professor or your best friend. Someone that you don't know is jumping out of their seat when you describe this product. That's the signal I'm looking for, right? It's not that... You have already have millions in revenue because then you'll raise a Series A. It's also not that you know this is the way the world's going to work. Having faith is not sufficient for me either. I want to see the first twinkle in a potential customer's eye that says, "Wow, I've been in this industry for a long time. I've never heard anything like this." If this person built it, I would love to have it. That's what I'm I'm looking for. Addressing this spark that the dream of an entrepreneur has actually made first contact with the potential customer and it actually sat well that it generated some interest. I'd say those are the primary things. And this has been true for many of the investments I've made, whether it be investments in companies that put software on cows. Earlier, you asked me to mention a few examples. There's a a portfolio company of ubiquities called Halter that turns cows into software. We jokingly call this technology cow And the idea is that uh, with a small piece of uh, smart hardware, you can have a collar that goes around the neck of a dairy cow. And once your dairy cows on a pasture all have this Halter collar, You now have the ability to monitor and move these cows with software. Moving involves the use of sound and vibration to coerce these cows to move any direction you want, forward, left, back, or right. With those two basic primitives, to use coding speak here, with those primitives, you can now construct any functional code or conditional code on top of that. That means you can say every day at 6 a.m., bring all my cows to the milk shed. You can do, again, coding speak, you can have a cron job, a nightly timer or a daily timer every day at noon, make sure that you bundle that with conditional code too. So you can read telemetry off the cows, you can construct conditional codes. So you could say every day at noon, a process triggered by a cron job. You can then say, check and see if any of my cows have eaten less than this amount of food. If so, then send them to the next patch of grass, the next paddock first. So this notion of a software-controlled, a software-driven farm, I don't think anyone will disagree. That is probably the way the world should work. And when I heard this pitch, I felt the same way, but then I wanted to validate with real farmers, real dairy farmers, that they agreed with this. It helps in this instance that Craig Pickett, the CEO... Grew up on a dairy farm. His family still runs a dairy farm. He's intimately connected with the problem, but he was able to also apply deep tech to the solution. Those are the signals I'm looking for when I hear a pitch is this elegant combination of technical depth and first perspective. customer contact?
1: that sounds really cool. I see that you're looking for a few specific things and you're very clear about your filters. Who are the people who would want this? Where are they? And can you find them and sell to them? Those are pretty pointed questions that you're looking answers to. When you talk to these companies, are there challenges that these entrepreneurs face when they tell the story to you? Would you like to give them a few tips on how to prepare before they meet a venture capital investor to tell their story?
0: Yeah, um, I would be happy to. Again, earlier I mentioned about 10 years in venture capital, so that's about 10,000 pitches I've heard. And I've detected a few common themes that persist to this day. The first one is that you should just say what you do in really simple words in the first... 30 seconds of a pitch. It probably sounds like a very obvious statement, maybe even remedial, but say what you do in the first 30 seconds. I would say over 50% of the pitches I take do not do this. They don't do it even 30 minutes in. I think there's a natural temptation to want to tell a beautiful, elegant story and build up context and have a big reveal about 30 minutes in. But in most cases, it's easy to lose an audience if you don't just spit out what it is. When I say describing what it is, There are fancy ways to describe something, a synergistic platform for collaboration. That doesn't mean anything to me. If you notice the way I described Halter, I said it's a collar that goes on a cow that helps you move the cow. Now, there's a much broader way to describe this. It's a a dairy farming productivity boosting platform. right? But I like, and I think most VCs would appreciate a clear, straightforward description of a company early on. And there is the tension of trying to convey a big picture and the long-term vision. So I would encourage most entrepreneurs to include both. But to get that out really quickly, just to anchor is is something really important. When I coach entrepreneurs, I back. So I back seed entrepreneurs. After 12 or 18 months, they go on to raise Series A rounds. When they do so, when I back an entrepreneur, they raise a Series A at double the industry average. 91% of my seed companies raise a Series Part of that is telling the story properly. And why I push all of them doing this this afternoon helping to draft a a series, a pitch deck, I always want slide one to just say what it is, how much you've raised, how many people and not like hide any of that or try to bring it up in a beautiful narrative that I think really what under what belies this, maybe the soapbox of mine is that that often storytelling can get in the way of basic understanding. So I, I wrote a blog post. You could look it up. It's about the hierarchy of pitching. I'm comparing it to Maslow's hierarchy. Before you can feel actualized, you need to have warmth and food, food in your belly and a warm place to sleep at night. In the same way, during a pitch, before you can get excited about the future of a product when you hear a pitch, you just have to understand what the product is. If I can only tell entrepreneurs one thing, it's just communicate what the product is as quickly as possible. The second thing I would share as advice is to... As quickly as possible, position your product through a customer's eyes. That's also a a much more helpful narrative. It's tricky because most entrepreneurs arrive at their product, they build the product from their perspective, and there's reasons that they do so. I'm asking them to then flip it around and speak in terms of a customer. Here is a potential customer. Here's what they were doing today before I met them. Here's how I would meet them. Here's how they might use my product. That can contextualize a product in a really helpful way. Telling a story for a seed stage company is a really tricky element, right? You can't answer questions like revenue or acquisition cost. You have to build up to the product. But doing so with that lens can be really, really helpful.
1: When you meet these entrepreneurs, not every one of these conversations turns into an investment. In fact, very, very small portion of them turn into an investment. And you've met thousands of companies over the years. What can they get out of the one-hour conversation
0: with you? I'm glad you're phrasing it that way, Gopi. I think... It's an unfortunate data point, but one that folks should internalize. 99% of pitches are not going to result in investment. Perhaps it's 99.8%. So having a, another goal to get out of a meeting beyond capital is, is really helpful. I agree. It is useful to think of it that way. I would say VCs categorically or all VCs are, are going to be pretty good at two things. They're not good at that many things. We're definitely not good at building companies ourselves. That's why we back entrepreneurs, but we are good at hearing about a lot of things so we have incredible landscape awareness that most entrepreneurs won't have we will have heard of 20 other companies in your adjacent space that just aren't on your radar because you're too focused on working on your product and one of the things you can get out of a vc meeting is to understand the landscape of other adjacent companies that have been out there pitching that are out in the market and even whether it's right or not you now understand as an entrepreneur you can understand how other vcs perceive your technology what else is nearby the second thing that VCs can often do is to distill a one hour meeting until like five seconds. So Gopi, you and I um, have invested together, for example, and you or I might take a pitch for an hour, hear a really beautiful, thoughtful, interesting pitch from a thoughtful, smart person. And you can take that one hour, that's uh, 3,600 seconds, and turn it into 10 seconds for me. That is a very... Just hard thing to do in general, to synthesize something. But more importantly, it's actually very hard for an entrepreneur to turn everything they do into just 10 seconds. It's painful. I was an entrepreneur 2009 to 2011. I could never pitch my company in five seconds or 10 seconds. I would need a minute or I would need 20 minutes. If you're in a VC pitch, you can hear how they're describing your idea back to you. So you understand simple ways to position your product. I actually find this is helpful with journalists as well. If you ever um, push for getting press as an entrepreneur, you'll see journalists are really good at writing about your company in a way that's interesting to more people and is cuts to the essence a bit more than from the entrepreneur's perspective. So I would encourage folks to try to get as much as possible in this, tree, this landscape and, uh, and simple description of your business.
1: Yeah, I'd like to get that 10 second version of the story so I can intelligently talk about the entrepreneur elsewhere. So I become an ambassador when I mention that, oh, yeah, I, I did speak to that company and this is what they do. Hopefully, if it's accurate, it helps the company. And if I don't catch on to it right away, if they don't dump it down enough for someone coming in for the first time to hear the story and grasp it, it's difficult for me to intelligently relay that information to the world outside.
0: It's way more important to communicate to you what it is as opposed to impressing you right? Like as a VC, entrepreneurs can think they need to wow me with their pitch, but I won't go anywhere until I understand the basics. That soundbite, the 10 second soundbite, I would encourage entrepreneurs after a meeting, you should, especially for most entrepreneurs will meet a VC that's in a larger organization. Ubiquity is a one person VC firm, but most entrepreneurs will meet an entrepreneur that's part of a 10 person investing team. They'll meet this VC that's part of a 10-person investing team. That VC will have to build consensus around this potential investment. So an entrepreneur, what you really want to do is arm the person you're talking to with as many sound bites as possible for them to build consensus around this investment. So that means that right after the meeting, you should, right after, within a minute, right after a meeting, you should send that VC a really short email with those two or three sound bites. It was a pleasure talking to you today. I'm glad we talked about my million dollar financing round to turn on smart farm tractors that have the ability to autonomously drive. I'd be happy to show you more, but I look forward to hearing from you soon. And that way you anchor what your description is in someone's mind, as opposed to them taking away their own description, probably butchering it along the way and then losing some steam on. I think about this. I think Gopi, you and I also have to raise our own capital. So we also do our own pitching. I don't think we talk about it a lot, but I do the same thing. After every time I pitch Ubiquity Ventures to an investor in a VC firm, they're called LPs. When I pitch Ubiquity to an LP, I always follow up right afterwards with a few simple ways to think about Ubiquity that roll off the tongue that can be socialized within teams and committees to make sure that I don't lose momentum um, with regard to the description.
1: Yeah, the insider world of venture capital is that people don't understand VCs pitch to LPs and VCs pitch to LPs with far less success rate compared to entrepreneurs pitching to VCs.
0: <laughs> That's right. But nobody wants to hear a VC complain about that. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a tricky animal. Pitching a VC firm usually means you're asking for money without any specifics about where the money's going. An entrepreneur, when they pitch me, I know exactly where the money's going. I know which people it's going into. I know what idea it's going into. But as general partners, you and me, we seek capital that will eventually be put into companies. But we can't say with exact specificity which one's just yet. At the core, it's a trickier problem.
1: We got into a lot of details about what you're looking for. The filters you use, the questions you ask, and how can entrepreneurs make it easy for you to understand. All of this takes time. How much time do you spend with an entrepreneur before you form conviction? Can it happen in one meeting, or does it happen over multiple meetings, over many weeks or months? What's the process for you?
0: Because of how I work as a one-person VC firm without colleagues like associates or partners, and because I... Um, so I operate a one-person firm. I also operate, a, I'd say, a one-focus firm, single-focus. I really aim to be very well-versed on the technologies I'm investing in before I take a pitch. So usually within a single meeting, I can get to like a 99% confidence that I'm going to do an investment. And that can be in the first hour. I may not share that in the first hour in case you know my mind changes or I get additional information. But With many of my most successful investments, I knew in the first 20 minutes, this was a ubiquity deal. And that's because I have a really tight description and a tight feeling of what a ubiquity deal looks like. More precisely, though, it's usually within 10 days or less after a first meeting that I can commit write a term sheet and have it signed for a million dollar investment from Ubiquity. Again, it harkens to having a, a really tight, specific focus. I, I don't follow that many technical areas. I follow a small number, but I go very deep in those areas. And that's turned out to be very helpful for having a better conversation in the first bits, but also building conviction really quickly.
1: Well, this is very helpful. You've given a lot of real life examples and specific stories from your past. But over the past 10 years, venture capital has changed a lot. What is different for you? How do you see the VC world and the, the startup world compared to how it was 10 years ago?
0: So a great question. In the last 10 years, you've seen a lot more technology startups emerge, a lot more venture capital firms emerge. It's a much more robust ecosystem. What that's done in the mainstream is it's elevated valuations, right? The average valuation for any stage is dramatically higher. That's probably a cyclical thing, but we're at a high point in the cycle. Uh, another element, though, and this is a bit of a pet peeve, is you see folks that are manipulating the words for these different financing rounds to adjust the traction hurdle that's necessary. So when I raised money, I raised money for my machine learning powered online dating startup in 2010. I raised a seed round. It was a $750,000 seed round. That was very normal. Today, people with a straight face will say that they raised a $10 million seed round. Now, to me, that seems ridiculous. A $10 million round used to be a Series B. I could say it's ridiculous, or I could say this is the new world we live in, that a seed round is $10 million, a Series A is 20 and a Series B is 30 But actually, I think what's happening is that people are raising the same kinds of capital at about the same kinds of time. We just have new labels on it. And the labels are a little bit tricky. It's very similar to having... A six-year-old playing soccer, wanting to squeeze them into the five-year-old league so that they're compared against their five-year-old peers. So in this case, people will raise a friends and family, and then a pre-seed, and then a pre-seed plus, and then a pre-seed extension, and then a $10 million seed. Now, really, you should just name those what they are, which was a seed, a series A, and a series B. That's a funny thing. I actually suspect, I have a strong suspicion that will disappear when there's a downturn. I don't know when that'll occur. But the fundamental bifurcation of financing is a great idea because you can have specialists and more sources of capital. But I think the nicknaming the rounds to manipulate people's first impressions is is a detrimental thing.
1: That trend has gone too far. Series A used to be the first round of funding. That's why it was called Series A. Now it's often fourth or fifth round of funding. Everybody wants to call their round the Series A and therefore others have to rename their round so that they can be prepared for Series A later.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a spiral. If you don't play along, then you get into a tricky spot. I've run into this issue a few times because, again, I partner with seed companies. I join their board. We grow the company, and we, we come up for air at the Series A to go out and try to raise. And often, just the level of quirky signaling. So if, if we wanted to, let's say, raise a $7 million Series A, what can often happen is people who I will, fellow VCs I know, I will say, hey, my company's raising a $7 million Series A their first reaction is, oh, is something wrong? Why aren't they raising a normal $12 million Series eh?" (laughs) A? And so you have this just whiplash back and forth as to which direction you should go. Should you raise a 12 even though you don't need 12? Should you go ahead and aim for that? Or can you raise the amount you want and still use those words? Or will you be judged? I mean, underneath all, this is all heavily superficial, right? We should call that out. This the, the real game here is build a great product, customers are happy, generate lots of revenue and have a great path. This is all icing, but it is critical to have that oxygen to grow. And weird perception quirks is actually pretty important in getting your foot in the door. So I'm, I'm constantly tracking it as well to figure out what are the right words to use for each round and what is the right financing path and what is the hurdle that unlocks future financing for my seed investments.
1: I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one?
0: The nonprofit that I'm involved with, I just became president of, is the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. This is the world's largest astronomy education society that's focusing on bridging the worlds between professional astronomers, amateur astronomers, and the public to share excitement about astronomy, to share excitement for looking up. One of the things, for example, that we worked on at the ASP is the creation of a Girl Scout badge for astronomy, so which is just a great. I don't know if this is a good expression to use, but I'll use it anyway. A good, a good gateway drug, right? To have folks get into astronomy as a gateway into science is fantastic. It's also great to get into astronomy to stay in astronomy. But I think everyone at the ASP, and myself included, don't think that every single person on Earth will spend their lives in astronomy. But it is a great way to connect the real natural physical world with the conceptual, math, physics chemistry, it incorporates all the disciplines. And so this nonprofit is one that I've been on the board of for four years now and just became president last week. It's an endeavor to pull more people into this nerdy topic and have them experience something that we find so enchanting, magical, and yet grounded in science and math.
1: As a fellow stargazing geek, I love this. Do agree with you that astronomy is probably one of the friendliest parts of sciences, which is easy for people to relate to, easy to get attracted to. So I'm delighted to see that you're using your efforts to bring science forward. Thank you very much for spending time with me today, sharing a lot of very, very interesting stories, personal stories and specific anecdotes on what works and what doesn't work in the startup ecosystem.